0: Wonderful song we just sang. The Lord keeps us day by day. Yes. Yeah. The Lord does that through a number of means. One of those means is through this gathering of the local church. The Lord has so designed it that we cannot be kept outside of other Christians who are ve- vehicles of God's grace keeping us. But the main means that God keeps us is through His Word. And so that's why every Sunday we spend the majority of our time opening up God's Word. This word written thousands of years ago, reading it, explaining what it means and trying to apply it to our lives. We trust that the Lord is the one who keeps us, who does good to us, who who builds us up through his holy word. And so uh, we keep things pretty simple here. We we pray God's word and we sing God's word. Right. We see God's word in the ordinances. We also preach and proclaim God's word. We believe that God's word is the main means of keeping his people. And so if you don't have a Bible of your own, I think Chris mentioned it, take that Bible under your seats as a gift from us to you. We want you to have your own copy of God's word. And if you grab one of those Bibles or have your own Bible now, we want you to keep that Bible open, All right, So that you can see if what I'm saying is what the Bible says, right? We want the Lord to keep us, not any single man that's preaching us. So I want you to listen as I read and as I preach to be looking at God's word. This morning we'll pick back up in the book of James. We started this book a couple of weeks ago. It's an epistle, one of the earliest epistles written in the New Testament. It's written by James, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a leader in the Jerusalem church, even more the half-brother of Jesus. This half-brother of Jesus, who once denied that Jesus Christ was Lord, but having seen the resurrected Christ, has now submitted himself to the Lord, not simply as his half-brother, but as a servant, as a slave of Christ. James is writing to a group of Christians, uh, much like many Christians in our country, many Christians around the world this morning, many Christians among us this morning, a group of Christians who have been tried and tested, a group of Christians whose Faith has been dealt with in some hard ways. A group of Christians who've been displaced by persecution, who are now scattered about. James writes to this group of people, not telling them, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Or how you perceive life is is not really how life is. There's no problems. There's no struggles. James writes to these believers, pointing their hope to Jesus. It's the same hope we need this morning. As exiles scattered about in this land. None of us are home yet. Home is heaven. And yet on this earth, we're trusting that the Lord will keep us day by day. The same hope that James had, that the Lord would keep his people day by day. And so James wrote this book to these believers, telling them to trust in the Lord and giving them practical instructions now as they face all kinds of trials. So you have your Bibles. We'll pick back up in the book of James this morning. And this morning, we'll look at chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Here's what I think is the the main idea of these few verses here in James chapter one the main idea of this passage Christian, your fight is not with God, but against sin. So fights. Like the new creation you are. Christian, your fight is not with God, but against sin. So fight like the new creation that you are. In this passage, I think we see James calling us to to take two actions when we are tempted. And so two points to the sermon. Two actions James is calling us to when tempted. Number one, don't blame. Don't blame. We see that in verse 13. Instead, number two, do battle. We see that in verses 14 through 18. Don't blame. Instead, do battle. Point number one don't blame. Don't blame God. And that's what James tells us outright here in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, it's important to note some connection here to the previous passage. Some of you have mentioned to me in previous weeks that in reading James, it seems all discombobulated, disconnected. Like James is just jumping from random topic to random topic. He might seem to be doing the same thing here. I mean, where we were a couple of weeks ago in verses 1 through 12, James was talking about trials. How God puts his people through trials to strengthen them, to mature their faith. With verse 12 telling us that the one who remains steadfast, faithful through trials, is the one who will receive the crown of life. And here we we jump to a different line of thought with temptations. Or do we? In the original Greek, the same word is is used for both trials, like we read in verse 2 and verse 12, and for this idea of tempting here in verse 13. But, But though it's the same word, there's a difference in nature. Yes, God sends us external trials, right? sends us external trials to test and mature our faith, to form it more firmly, to purify and to strengthen it. But with Every external trial, there's an internal temptation to respond to the trial wrongly, to respond to the trial sinfully. I mean, think of instances in the scriptures where we see this. In Genesis chapter 22, God tested Abraham with the trial of offering his son Isaac to be sacrificed. And along with that test, there was a temptation for Abraham not to trust God and not to trust God to deliver on his promise to make his seed, his offspring as numerous as the stars in heaven. I mean, how could that happen if Abraham slaughtered his son, Isaac? I mean, Abraham had succumbed to the internal temptation not to trust God before. Remember when he slept with Hagar to provide a son instead of waiting for God. Maybe he'd be tempted to doubt God again. God sent the trial, the test, but with it came the internal temptation to, to respond sinfully. It's what meets us over and over and over as we face the trials of various kinds that James talked about earlier. God puts you through the trial of a difficult work situation with an overbearing, unkind, and unfair boss. Or with a lazy coworker who passes their work off to you but takes all the credit when it's time for the credit to be passed around. God is meaning to build up your endurance. To build up in you patience. To build up in you gentleness. To build up in you love through the trial. But with that trial comes the temptation to respond to it by slacking off at work. By slandering your boss or that coworker. Or maybe you've witnessed the, the immense trials people are facing in Florida this week, where Hurricane Ian has smashed homes and demolished lives. And you're tempted to question God's goodness and his love, to question God's care for his people. With those trials intent, uh, intended to sanctify you, to build up your faith, come the temptations to sin. And to destroy your faith. The former comes from God, the the trial, but not the latter, the temptation. James is meaning to guard us from groundless claims. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. This is God's fault. Why does James have to warn us against making this kind of declaration? Well, because it's what naturally springs up from our hearts and from the lips that that God has given us. I mean, we all love to play the blame game. Everyone wants to pass the buck off to somebody else. At the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned and God confronted them, what did they do? Blame others. Eve, the serpent, he deceived me. Adam, the woman. The woman you gave me. They blame others and ultimately blame God. You are the reason we're in this predicament. This is totally your fault. The people God created in his image to glorify him, to honor him, to obey him and to make him their worldly and earthly treasure to to make him their all in all, the same people make God out to be their enemy. Make God out to be against and not for them. Have you noticed the same thing in your heart? An accusatory attitude towards God? Maybe you're in a messy or just a mundane marriage. You prayed for that spouse. God gave you that spouse. You praise God for that spouse. Now you blame God for that spouse. God don't want you to be happy. How could you be happy with the way he or she looks now? With the way he or she acts now? It's God's fault that I grumble and complain about my marriage. He gave me him or her. God's fault really that I'm a disgruntled employee or student. It's God's fault that I watch porn. God's fault that I sleep around. I mean, he know I got needs. And He the one that ain't given me a spouse. Or who's given me a spouse that ain't got the same kind of drive that I have to meet those needs. Lord, you. You are the God who is testing my faith. To produce steadfastness and spiritual maturity and deep-seated joy through all these different trials. That's how we should respond. But how we often respond is, Lord, you. You are to blame. You are at fault for all that's going wrong. You are at fault when I fall. You may have never spoken those words verbally. And so you feel immune from James's command here to let no one say he is being tempted by God. I never say those kind of things. But where our lips are silent, our hearts are often shouting, aren't they? I mean, isn't this something of the claim that we make when when we allow trials to turn our hearts cold towards God? You, You might never say that God is the one who's wrong, but your actions speak louder than your words. You show that you're really disinterested in him, disgruntled at him, don't want to be around him. What leads to adopting this kind of attitude, one of blaming God whenever we're tempted to sin? Well, we could outline a number of things, but, but let me key in on just one. I think one of the factors is that we are all prone to, a, to adopt the kind of prosperity gospel. One that assumes and acts like the Christian life isn't supposed to be hard. That God is only supposed to pour out blessings upon blessings upon us in the form of a prosperous life. Now, we might shun the kind of gross perversions of that that we see out there in those other churches among those Christians. I mean, those ones looking for a lavish lifestyle, lavish houses, expensive jets, lots of money as a result of their faithfully following the Lord. But let's examine ourselves and the kind of softer prosperity that we often seek. For God to give us a pleasant marriage, well behaved children, a wealth of deep friendships, a church that checks every box. I mean, the music, the message, the ministers, the ministries, the amenities, the everything is on point. But friends, God has never promised to give us any of those things. And in the absence of those false promises being fulfilled and difficult trials taking their place, instead, we're presented with what seems like a prime opportunity to cast blame on God. He hasn't been good to me. Well, the problem is that we've wrongly defined good. Good. But James is out to help us by pointing us to God. You can't ever blame God for temptations to sin because God is good. That's kind of the banner statement summarizing the the two reasons James gives for, for, for why you can't blame God for temptation. First, James says toward the end of verse 13, right? Don't blame God for or because God cannot be tempted with evil. We need to take notice when the scriptures, which over and over declare and demonstrate God's absolute power and God's absolute authority to do all things. We need to take notice when those same scriptures then specify specific things that God cannot do. Right. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. God cannot lie. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. God cannot deny himself. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19, God cannot change his mind. And here in James chapter 1 verse 13, God cannot be tempted with evil. What God can't do here is good news for us. You know, sometimes you have a, an accountability partner or someone to help you fight temptation. And with that accountability partner, generally, You pick someone who doesn't struggle with the same things that you struggle with, right? I mean, you need someone stronger than you in that area. But friends, even the best accountability partner is still susceptible to sin. They might not give in to that temptation, but they're not immune to it. And so there's a limited trust that you put in them, not an ultimate trust. But thank God that we can trust in him totally. He can help us with any kind of temptation because he himself cannot be tempted. We're dealing with someone above us here. God is totally other than us, totally unlike us. He's better than us. He's holier than us. He's purer than us. He's not susceptible to sin as we are. The temptation to sin doesn't sparkle in his eyes. Perversion doesn't please him not one bit. He's different from us and yet totally devoted to help us and not hurt us. He can't be tempted by sin, and James says, he himself tempts no one. God is not out here playing games with folks' lives like like pawn pieces on a chessboard. Perhaps you've seen the, the movie from the 80s, Trading Places, where these two wealthy older brothers set out to to play a game where they toy with two people's lives to to see what might happen. They introduce circumstances to, to see how it all plays out. They have no concern at all for the two men. They just want to see what will happen. Well, that's not what God does. He has all power and all authority. He can do as he pleases, but he does not have devious plans to plunge us into destruction. I mean, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now, we'll see shortly that that death is the result of sin. So if God takes no pleasure in the final outcome of death, then he certainly takes no pleasure in the actions and attitudes that precipitate it, that lead up to death. He takes no pleasure in tempting people to sin. He tempts no one. That's not who God is or what God does. Maybe you're here this morning and that's not your picture of God. You feel like it's God's fault what you're going through in your life. God is the one tempting me, you say. So friends, you're just going to have to step back and make a decision here. Will you trust yourself or will you trust God? Are you willing to say right now that your opinion, that your perception, that your thoughts are more determinative, more authoritative, more decisive than God's very word here? Are you willing to call God a liar? The Bible says God tempts no one. Do you know some of the thoughts informing that that idea that God is the one tempting me it seems to have a little bit of legitimacy because we believe the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, Amen. that God is over all things. And so we need to wrestle with some tension here. The Bible says that God is in absolute control over every single thing, which would include temptation. He's over that, and yet here the Bible says that God tempts. No one. Well, how can God be over everything, including temptation, and yet God not tempt people? Well, the scriptures constantly proclaim that God is sovereign over good and evil. God is behind both good and evil, but asymmetrically, unevenly, not in the same way. The Lord Actively does good. You are good and all that you do is good, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 68. But but though he allows evil, though he ordains sin for his own glorious purposes, he is not the author of sin, nor does he actively do sin. He stands directly behind good, but indirectly behind evil. He governs evil. He governs temptation, but never directly brings it so that it can never be said of God that God sins or God tempts. Friends, how that can be so. The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us and we need to be content with that. But that it is so the Bible clearly says it clearly says here, God tempts no one. And we trust God's word. We trust God. I mean, that we don't know how it all works, how God can be over temptation and sin but not be responsible for it, is not determinative. Right? Our thoughts about how it all works, we don't understand it. Right? That's not the kind of end-all, be-all. It doesn't debunk that to be a reality. I mean, we don't know how to solve a Rubik's Cube. We don't know how they get the bubble gum into the middle of a blow pop. All right. All right. Saints, it's okay to say, I don't know how. Yeah. What is not okay to say is God is to blame. John Piper provides a good analogy for us here. He says, if finite humans can find ways to handle radioactive uranium to produce useful energy without being contaminated by the deadly radiation, then it is likely that the infinitely wise God can handle the deadly evil of sin without contamination or harm in bringing about His wise and holy purposes. If finite humans searching for a preventive vaccine can handle the, the lethal viruses of new diseases, without being infected themselves. It is likely that the infinitely wise and good God can handle the disease of sin without himself being infected. Again, God is infinitely above us. He's greater than us. He is infinitely wise. He is infinitely good. He cannot be tempted, neither does he tempt anyone. In temptations then, we should trust and believe in him. But don't blame him. Don't blame him. Instead, number two, do battle. Point number two, do battle. Don't blame God. Number two, do battle. Okay, well, with who? (laughs) Tell me who I need to fight. Who's my enemy? Well, considering that the problem is temptation to sin, then you'd think that the person you need to battle, I love the hand up right there. <laughs> that was kind of a rhetorical question. I asked on Coco what a rhetorical question is, right? Uh, considering that the enemy is uh, temptation, right? right? That we've just been talking about temptation to sin. you think that the person you need to do battle with is Satan. I, I mean, the scriptures call Satan the tempter. Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. But James points us in a different direction. The devil is but one of our enemies. There's a more intimate and just as lethal enemy that we need to fight ourselves. Do battle with yourself. James wants us to put sin to death by showing us in verses 14 and 15 the process of temptation. It's not God who tempts you, he says. But verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's a a fishing metaphor. That of enticing a fish in with with bait and then watching as it bites down on it and then luring it or dragging the fish away into the nets. James infuses the metaphor with spiritual overtones. That's how a person is tempted. Their own internal desires rise up and entice them with the prospect of the pleasure of carrying out some specific sin. And you open your heart wide and bite down on it. You lock in that idea that, that it would be good for you to pursue this thing that looks so attractive. And before you know it, you are being dragged away with seeming no control. The language here is reminiscent of some of the language in Proverbs chapters 5 through 7 of the seductress who entices. She smells good. Her bed is perfumed. She she looked good. She's beautiful. She talked good. Her lips drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, whatever that means. So that the writer has to warn, do not desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. You see the warning there? He doesn't just say, don't sleep with her. It's too late then. That's more downstream. You can't stop that current once it's that far down. No, he says, don't desire her in your heart. Defeating sin demands dealing with your heart. Friends, all of us have a problem that resides within us. We all, since Adam, have sinful natures so that evil and sinful desires are always rising up from our hearts. From the heart, Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, come evil thoughts comes sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. That's why we need a new heart and a new spirit. The kind of new heart and new spirit that Ezekiel prophesied about in Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26. Where God promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's the new heart that God has given us in the new covenant, instituted by the blood of God's very own son. Jesus Christ, the son of God, came as the perfect man. He lived the perfect life of obedience to God. He denied every temptation and he defeated sin and death by his sacrificial death on the cross and by his resurrection from the grave. Through repentance and the faith in him, we are given new life, but not to live on our own. God sends his very spirit to live within us. We are transformed and given new desires to live for God not to sin against God. And yet we aren't totally freed from the corrupt fallen bodies and fallen wills that are natural to us. But we have another nature, a new nature, a spiritual nature that allows us to go to war against that old nature. And so we fight. Now, friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, If you don't have this new nature in Christ to fight sin, then that's what you most need right now. And God will give it. Why do you keep falling time and time again? Because you cannot help yourself. You need someone better than you. You need not a human nature. You need a spiritual nature. You don't need what's natural. You need what's supernatural. And God will give it. If you turn from your sins, If you confess that I am a sinner and cannot stop sinning which is a testimony of all of us before Jesus. If you confess that right now and plead to the Lord, Lord, I need Jesus because I can't stop sinning, but Jesus never sinned, but he died for all my sins. Lord, I want to trust in him. If you turn from your sins and you call out to the Lord in faith, then the Lord promises he will forgive you all your sins and he will give you a new heart. You might have come in here today with all kinds of old problems but you can leave here today with a new heart. You might have come in here today with all kinds of issues from your life, but you can leave here today with a new life. Not a life free of any problems, but a life free from bondage to sin. So that you can walk through any kind of problem. If you need help understanding how to have that kind of new life, talk to anyone around you after service. find me at the door. We want you to know this King Jesus who can give you a clean heart that you might pursue him in faith and obedience. If you're already a Christian, know that you are a new creation. Know that you have a new nature, one that does not have to give in to your old desires and to your old demands. How do you fight those old desires that seem so strong? Well, it's not by white-knuckling and just saying, no, 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 no. It's by allowing your heart to be filled with better desires, with more attractive desires. So that woman or that man on the screen, what did you see in person? They might be fine. They might be giving all kinds of signals to you. And there might be all kinds of little butterflies going up in your heart. He's showing me attention or she's looking all good to me. She done not her eyes twice. And you might have in your mind that they would make you happy. But fill your mind with a deeper ha- happiness, with an even better sight. Think on Matthew chapter five, verse eight, where Jesus says, "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity in heart brings ultimate happiness, Jesus says, and an ultimate reward. I shall see God. In all his splendor, in all his glory, in all his beauty, in all his perfection. And the Bible says, not only will I see God, I will be like him. Morally without sin or any temptation to sin. Intellectually without error, physically without weakness, spiritually filled with his very spirit. We need better desires. Yes, yeah, she might look good or that, that, that temptation to take that money, it might look good. You can have it. It's attractive. But do you want something better? Do you want to see the glorious God face to face and be transformed like him? Then say no to that thing. It's not good enough. Trade in earthly treasures made of mud and clay for heavenly treasures. We need better desires. The kind of desire that David expresses in Psalm chapter 27. One thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon his beauty, to inquire in his temple forever. Saints, fill your heart with God's word, with the promises of God's word, with the perfection of God's person. Ask God, as Moses did, to show you his glory. And in doing so, to squeeze out the seeming glory and the seeming beauty found in desiring and pursuing evil. James causes us here to think deeply about what's going on inside of us to be more introspective. Sin starts within. It rises up. So kill it before it takes root. Take every thought captive, Paul says. Don't allow your mind to daydream about that lust or that evil. Friends, we're human. We're we're endowed with, with marks of God's beauty. And so it's okay to acknowledge external beauty. It's okay to to pass by someone on the street or to work with someone and to acknowledge she's attractive. He's attractive. But don't allow that thought to drag you away into a fantasy world where you leave your wife and go be happy with her. Even if it never becomes a possibility. James wants us to recognize the poison of pursuing just the thoughts, Right? It's not just, you you can't just say like, well, I know it's never going to happen. Chewing on that bone is going to lead you to hell. Even if it never happens. You know, when you read those stories about somebody who, who fell drastically, it's a thousand compromises before that drastic fall. People die slowly by a thousand cuts. People go to hell by a thousand compromises. Which ones are you making this morning? Which ones do you need to cut off? Which phone numbers do you need to delete? Which websites do you need to stop visiting? Which houses do you need to stop lusting after? Which jobs do you need to stop pursuing? Which people do you need to remove from among your midst? A thousand small steps. I think this emphasis on temptation to sin starting within gives us a good set of questions to ask one another as church members. It says we are responsible for each other's spiritual health and growth. That's part of what it means to be a member of a church that I'm locking arms with these other people to help them get to heaven. So, so yes, ask, what sins are you struggling with? That's great. But press deeper, and from this verse, ask, what is it that you've been desiring lately? How's your thought life? One pastor in our area presents perhaps a a better way of getting at at your heart's deepest desires. He asks, "If, if you had one hour to do anything you wanted and would face no consequences, what would you do? One hour to do whatever you wanted with no consequences, what would you do? I mean, you could do whatever your heart desires, no penalty, right? What would that be? How would you answer that question? Would you fill that hour up with godly pursuits or with evil ones? Don't let your desires drag you away into temptation. Because if you do, know where it leads. Destruction. James shows us that in verse 15. If you allow your desires to drive you, if you carry them out, this is what happens. Look at verse 15. Then, after you've kind of allowed desire to have its full course, desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, there's some encouragement for us here. Temptation is not the same as sin. Some of us especially need to hear that this morning because you might be crushed that you are still struggling with the same temptations you've been facing since before you were a Christian. And those temptations feel so strong, forcing you to act on them. But you don't need to act on them. Keep fighting them. The presence of temptations does not disprove that you are a Christian. Your response to temptations is what demonstrates are you truly following the Lord? Fight temptations. The Lord is pleased with your fighting them. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, Paul said. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted above your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you might be able to bear it. You hear that last thing? You might be able to bear it. You might not ever be totally freed from temptation, from a specific temptation. But one way God grants relief is by enabling you to stand under that temptation without succumbing to it. And as you continue to bear up under that thing, you realize I'm getting stronger and stronger to say no to that sin. Keep fighting. Because it's when you give in to temptations that sin is introduced. James says it's when you let those internal desires rule over you that sin is birthed. It's when Eve desired the forbidden tree and, and what it supposedly promised to the point of then taking the fruit. Then opening her mouth and biting down on the fruit, that's when she sinned. She could have desired all she wanted and then turned to the Lord and said, Lord, I'm having a hard time with that tree over there. Help me. But it's when she desired and then acted on that desire. When she reached out and when she grabbed and when she opened and when she ate, then sinned. Where are you in that trajectory this morning? Have you already got your hand out? Got your hand firmly around some forbidden fruit? Is your mouth open? Don't bite down. Never too late. It's never too late. It's when we not only desire, but then take and eat that we sin. And friends, sin is no light thing. We treat it like that sometimes, don't we? Everybody sins. Every sin is high treason against the high king of heaven. Every sin is shouting at God, I hate you. Don't want you to be around me. Why did you make me like this? I want to live my own way. Sin is rebellion against God. And it has disastrous effects. It will bring God's wrathful response. Death. Spiritual and physical death. The sin that at one time in seed form promises so much pleasure only brings pain. It never gives you life. When it is fully grown, James says, it just brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. Death and destruction from God's hand. God promises to reward all those who sin against him with eternal damnation in hell. So you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Those temptations to sin never lay out the full picture. They only show the immediate returns of your action. Temporary satisfaction. Instant gratification. But don't show the long-term ruin of that spiritual investment. Friends, God loves you enough not to lie to you. He told Adam and Eve, in the day of, that you eat of the forbidden tree, you will surely die. He tells us here desires that are not cut off will lead to temptation and temptation not resisted will lead to sin and sin indulged in will lead to death. God loves us too much not to lie to us, but God loves us so much, not only that he doesn't want us to believe a lie, that sin brings life and happiness. God loves us so much that he does not want us to live with sin's consequences. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die the death that we deserve to die. I mean, he did nothing wrong. And yet he took all our sins in his body on the tree. He ate all our charges. The righteous one took on all our unrighteousness. He became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look at what sin leads to. And look at what God has done for you, giving his own son to rescue you from sin. Let that drive you to fight every internal drive to sin and rather drive you towards the Lord, to worship and live for him. That's where James ends us here, back with God. He warned in verse 13, don't ever blame God for your temptations. And in verses 14 and 15, he pointed us to, to look at ourselves instead, to to where the problem really lies and to do battle within. And now he directs us back to God in verses 16 to 18 to kill any false notions that might remain about the Lord. James says in verse 16, do not be deceived. Deceived into what? Well, into the thoughts of verse 13 that, that God tempts you Don't think that God does people dirty, that God is is out to get you, that God sends evil. God is not like that, James says. What is God like? Again, God is good. Verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God can't send you evil. It's impossible. He only sends good. Every good and perfect gift is from him. Which means then that the trials that James mentioned earlier, that God puts us through, are good gifts from him. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 tells us, For those who love God, all things, afflictions, trials, tragedies, losses of homes, Losses of children. I mean, horrible things. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The Bible reorients us. Hard things from God, suffering, afflictions are gifts. Good gifts for my good. Even if I don't feel it, even if I don't see it, God says it. He gives good gifts to his children and will never change up. He's the father of of lights, James says, in whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all, nor will there ever be. God is the father of lights. He made the sun and the moon and the stars. It, It points us back to creation when God made everything. And after everything he made, God said it was good. Because God, the creator, is good. And this God never changes. He's the same yesterday and today and forevermore. Always good. Are you doubting that? Do trials of life tempt you to disbelieve that? Then again, look at what God has done for you. How he's chiefly demonstrated his goodness to you. Verse 18, of his own will, not forced or influenced by anyone or anything, not constrained in any way of his own good purpose because he wanted to. He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of creatures, of his creatures. Verse 15 said that that sin brings forth death. Well, here God, who is total opposite of sin, who is savior, brought us forth to eternal life by the word of truth, the gospel of his son, the good news that he brought to us testifying of the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. He calls us to be born again to a living hope and he has made us first fruits or a kind of down payment on the renewal that will come to all of creation. The whole world will be remade and we Christians are the first signs of it. We get to lead the way in showing now what will be revealed soon. We get to play our role as the crowning act of God's creation by living lives holy to and consecrated to the Lord. Remade in the image of God's Son. Resisting temptation and sin. And looking towards our reward. God Himself. Christian, your fight is not with God, but is against sin. So fight like the new creation you are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you so loved us that you've given us your word to live by. We thank you that you remind us of trials and hardships. And Lord, you guard us from temptations to sin and rebel against you in the midst of them. Use every hardship for our good, Lord. Lord, use this passage, Lord, to cause us to look within and to root out any sin internal to us, Lord. Any desires that are creeping up and leading us away from you Lord, help us to put sin to death. We might live in Christ. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.